Welcome to Gateway's podcast. We hope God speaks to you through this message from Pastor Don Brock. For more information about Gateway, please visit www.gatewaybc.com. Good morning. It's good seeing you today. And those who are joining us online, we're glad that you're with us as well. Uh, We're still in the book of Acts, and today we're going to be picking up in Acts chapter 3. You know, one of the things that happened during the pandemic, people watched a lot of movies. <laughs> they stayed home. They, uh, Netflix, I think their stock value went way up because so many people were renting Netflix. But, uh, you know, when you watch movies, uh, people, a lot of the actors and actresses become typecast very easily. And so you kind of know what you're going to see based on the actor or actress that's in the movie. You know, the action heroes, the the ones who are the wise cracking sidekicks. Uh, so like when Tom Cruise is in a movie, I'm expecting this macho, actually insecure with a daddy issue going to be uh, the guy. Uh, Brad Pitt, he always seems to play some kind of mysterious guy and can't always f- quite figure out the plot. Um, Meryl Streep, well, she's just amazing in whatever she's in. She just does an amazing job. Johnny Depp, always going to be weird. Uh, <laughs> Kevin Hart, uh, he's always going to be that short, obnoxious guy who needs the big, strong guy to tell him what to do and to show him the way. And Robert Downey Jr. is going to be that overconfident, snarky dude. And then our man, The Rock, uh, he's always going to play this adventurous, headstrong kind of guy who actually has a very caring side to him. And then Will Farrow. Will Farrow, he, he's just an overgrown man baby. That's what he is, and that's the kind of roles he plays. But, you know, even church is kind of typecast. And uh, for many people, um, the role that we play in society, uh, they see the church as antagonistic uh, towards progress. I mean, for example, um, they believe we're morally regressive and that we're against the progress of development of our culture. And, uh, and they believe that, you know, a lot of times we're tap, typecast as, oh, you're that group of people that are against everything and against anybody who would disagree with the scripture. And, um, and so th- that characteristic is nothing new. It actually started when the church started. And we're going to start seeing that in Acts chapter 3. When the church began, uh, we see that this typecasting is something that's been there all along. And so we're not dealing with anything new in our society um, and the way the church is viewed. I mean, it is interesting how we live in a society now that everything is accepted, everything is okay, unless you're a Christian. And then it's different. The attitude is different. So as we look at this, Uh, I want to show you, while it's not new, I also want to show you it's not accurate. The the typecasting that's been placed on us is not accurate at all. And um, I mean, when you look at what the church does and how the church is engaged in society and and all all the church does, I mean, if if you need counseling, we'll help. 
Uh, if you need job training, we'll help. If you need a bag of groceries, the church helps. Uh, if you need a safe place, we help. Uh, if you need some parenting insight or rehabilitation, we help. If you need a community of friendship, we help. Uh, if you have questions and doubts, we help with that. If you have addictions, we help with that. If you have a desire for a fresh start, we help with that. If you, uh, if you have a vision to help others, we help with that. I mean, you could just go on and on and on the things that we do as a church every single day. So the, these perceptions, these, this typecasting is just not accurate, but it's been there from day one. And I, I think ultimately it's because of who Jesus is. Ultimately, because of what Jesus had to say. So we're going to look in chapter 3. We're going to see the very first miracle performed post-Jesus. This is the very first one. And, and this is something that's frequent in Acts. There's 14 different times that miracles were performed. <clears throat> and so Acts 3 is that first instance. Uh, instance and some scholars believe that when you understand this miracle, it helps you to understand all of the miracles. And so I, I believe that this miracle shows us how God feels about suffering and, and what he wants to do about it. You see, the world that we live in now, all the suffering that's there, that's been here for centuries and actually for millenniums, that was not God's intent. He didn't create the world to be that way. But because of sin, it has become that way. And the Bible tells us that one day God's going to restore or make anew back the way he intended it to be all along. So we're in that in-between time of when sin came and then Jesus came and dealt with sin and now we're waiting on that time when God settles the accounts, totally removes the effects of sins on this planet, and makes everything new, and makes everything original just the way he intended it to be. So as we talk about this miracle, let's just take the text, let's read it, and then we'll walk through it. So we're going to start reading in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the three o'clock prayer meeting, the prayer service. As they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. That was a, a daily thing. Each day he would be put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he, he could beg from the people going into the temple. I mean, that's, that's a smart location. That's a good location. You know, you're going to catch people when they're trying to feel good about God and want God to feel good about them. So they're more apt to want to do something to help somebody. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. Peter and John looked at him intently. And when I read that, I say, okay, they knew immediately from the Holy Spirit, I want you to do something here. And so Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked at them eagerly expecting some money. And Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I will give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ 
the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and he helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. It wasn't, you got to crawl first, then walk. It was instant. And, and not just his feet and his ankles, the muscles would have been restored because they had never been used. And I would imagine they barely existed. So everything was made right. And this guy immediately, he jumped up and stood on his feet and began to walk. Then walking and leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. All the people saw him walking and heard him praising God when they realized this is the lame beggar that we've seen so often at the beautiful gate. They were absolutely astounded. And, and, and so they should have been. They all rushed out in amazement to Solomon's colonnade where the man was holding tightly to Peter and John. Later on, we find out that this guy actually becomes a, one of the disciples or becomes a, a follower of Jesus. This miracle went like this. Peter and John were walking, silver and gold I have not, but they pull him up by his hand. Immediately his feet and ankles are made strong and he began to walk and leap and praise God. And people were amazed and the word spread. And then Peter stands up and preaches to the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stare at us as though as we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? For it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of all of our ancestors, who has brought glory to his servant Jesus by doing this. So ultimately, the miracle is all about Jesus, right? It's not about the lame guy. It's not about Peter and John. It's about Jesus. The same Jesus that you handed over and rejected before Pilate, and despite Pilate's decision to release him, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. It's kind of like, what is wrong with you people? You killed the author of life. Did you get that phrase? Life came from Jesus. The first life came from Jesus. Your life came from Jesus. He shaped you and he formed you in your mother's womb. And your eternal life comes from Jesus. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of that of this fact. It's not hearsay. Through faith in the name of Jesus, this man was healed. And you know how crippled he was before. Faith in, and, and just let me stop there for a second. There are a lot of people that needed healing that day. But this was the only one they healed. Because it was for God's glory. 
He says, you know how crippled he was before. Faith in Jesus' name has healed him before your very eyes. Friends, I realize that what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah. That he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshments will come from the presence of the Lord and he will again send you Jesus. So that has yet to happen right there. He again will send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, for he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things. That's not happened yet. We're still living in that time waiting for that to occur. For Jesus is going to stay in heaven until the time that's already set. Jesus is going to come back and there'll be a final restoration of all things. The way it's meant to be without sin in the equation. As God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Wow, man, I, I, I get excited thinking about that. And then, then he goes on and says, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, talking to Moses talking about himself, <clears throat> from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet, talking about Jesus, will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. Are, you are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up the servant Jesus, he sent him first to you, the people of Israel, and listen to this, to bless you by turning each of you back from your sinful ways. Hmm. So the word first went to the Jews and then it was meant for the whole world, including you and me. One commentator said there are a couple of different directions we can see in this event, this miracle. The first one was upward. This miracle gave authenticity to Jesus. Peter said, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name has made this man strong. So this miracle was a witness to Jesus as all miracles are. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said, our great salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So every time God does a miracle, it's to bring glory to himself and to testify who Jesus is. So miracles is God's way of saying, hey, it's really me. 
It, it really is me. You know, uh, 50 years ago, it became popular to say that a true academic world would never use a miracle as an explanation of some historical scientific phenomenon. And in most places, I would agree with that. But for example, a century ago, we were just starting to understand the basics of chemistry and thermodynamics and and we couldn't figure out the sun. We couldn't figure out where it was getting all its power from. And so the scientific world would say, well, the sun, it just drew its power directly from God. But then today we recognize that the sun's energy's output is actually from nuclear fusion. Hmm. Does that make it less God? Not at all. Who created nuclear fusion? Well, God did. And that's how God chose to do the sun. But we have an understanding of it now. We understand how God did it. It's kind of like a magician. You watch a magician and you're first just spellbound. Like, how did he do that? How did he do that? Well, you know, if you watch him long enough and you pull back all the curtains and take away the table and all the special effects, you can figure out how he did it. I mean, there's always, there's always a way that it was done. And, uh, and it, it wasn't something magical. It just had that appearance. So everything that we see that even the things we don't understand, I mean, I don't understand how the universe works, but I know it does. And God does it. How he does it, I don't know, but he has put certain laws. He, he created certain laws. He created the law of gravity. And you can choose not to believe it. If you can, there's a ladder in that room that'll take you to the roof and I want you to disprove the law of gravity to me by jumping off the building. <laughs> See how far you get, about 70 feet. <laughs> I, I mean, God's created these laws that we live by and some of the laws we still have yet to discover. And, uh, and in your lifetime, some laws have been discovered. We, we have discovered through these uh, Nuclear telescopes, how we can see the, the smallest, smallest part of, I mean, we understand more about how cells even work and, and what that's all about just because of inventions and stuff. But God's in that. God's the creator. And so if God's the creator of laws, he can also suspend those laws. And he's done that. There was a battle in the Old Testament and the sun was beginning to go down and, and the Israelites had not won the battle yet and, and God suspended the sun. I mean, it just stopped. Now, how, how did he do that? He, he added a lot of hours to that day, a whole lot of hours. Did he cause the earth to stop rotating? And then if he did that, then he had to somehow keep gravity in place. We don't know how he did it, but the question is not, did he do it? The question is, could he have done it? Could God have suspended time? And if your answer is no, then you got a real problem with God. And if your answer is, well, yeah, God could have done it, then what's your problem? If God created a law, he can suspend that law. He, in fact, he did it another time where he actually backed 
time up, 15 minutes in, in scripture. How did he do it? I don't know. Could he have done it? Absolutely. And that's how God raised Jesus from the dead. He suspended the law of death. I mean, God created death. He said, when sin enters the world, so does death. On the day you sin, that's when the death process starts. That's what he told Adam and Eve. He said, on the day you eat of that fruit, you'll die. Well, they didn't die that day, but the death process started. And so death is a result, something that God created as a result of sin. So God could suspend death and he did. And there's one recording in the scripture of an individual who never experienced death. The only recording we have. And God just took him at 75 years old, just took him to heaven. And he didn't physically die. Lazarus, Jesus suspended death, brought him back. But Lazarus had to die again. Jesus brought Jesus, Jesus was brought back to life by God. That's the power of God. So that's why he can forgive you of your sins. That's why he can meet any need that you have. And that's why he's still in the miracle business today. And the most astounding miracle, I think, in scripture is in Genesis 1-1, where it said, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. That's astounding. So if you believe in God, you have to accept the possibility of miracles. God did not give us an airtight argument. What he gave us was an airtight person. He gave us Jesus. The second thing about this miracle, there's a forward part of it, the future restoration. Peter says that this healing is a sign of a coming restoration where God's going to make everything happen just like he promised. And uh, he was going to restore everything. In fact, the Bible says the day's coming where the lion will lay down with the lamb. Do you know the Bible says that an infant will play near a cobra's den and a young child will put his hand in the viper's nest and it'll be okay because nature will be completely restored the way it was meant to be. No death, no pain, no hurt, no attacks, no devouring. But you and I living with all of God's creation. I mean, if you... Wonder if there's animals in heaven. Well, yeah, there are. How's the lion going to lay down with the lamb if they're not there? God created animals. In fact, he enjoys them. He plays with them. So there's lots of sick people and lame, lame people in Jerusalem that day that Peter and John did not heal. In fact, when Jesus was around, there were a lot of people that he did not heal. So the purpose of healing was more than just for the person, but it was for everybody else to see God at work.
I mean, Jesus' miracles were not a magic show to show how powerful it was. I mean, if he wanted people to see how powerful he was, he, he could have had an angel to write his name up in the heavens, in the sky. He could have had the temple physically, literally lift up from the ground. If Jesus wanted to show miracles, he, he could have had uh, the South Carolina football team win the national championship. And uh, sorry, sorry about that. I'm sorry. Don't cut the tires on my car. <laughs> but he didn't do things like that. Every miracle that Jesus did and the apostles did was an alleviation of suffering. And they pointed to his saving purpose. And that's what he did. God did not create the world with pain or blindness or disease or death. That came through the corruption of sin. And God's going to restore it back. So to those of you who are in pain, whether it's physically or emotionally, that is your great hope. Your sustaining joy that it's only temporary. Jonah Erickson taught us, who was paralyzed in a diving accident when she was a teenager. Um, she still lives in a wheelchair. She paints by putting a paintbrush in her mouth. And could God have healed her? Absolutely. A lot of people prayed for her healing, but she sees it differently. And her life has been a real testimony, and she's witnessed to a lot of people by not being healed. And here's what she said. She says, at the great marriage supper of the lamb, the first thing I think I'll do on resurrected legs is fall to my glorified knees and praise the God of resurrection and healing. And then I'll stand and dance before him with all my might. Wow. She's already focusing on her future healing. And you know, that's the sad thing about atheism. And that's where it falls apart. There's zero hope. You and I have hope. And, and then there's this inward part about miracles. It, it's our soul's need for salvation. You see, physical ailments of some point eventually point to the heart condition of us all. See, some people are physically blind, but Ephesians says that we're all spiritually blind, and that's why we need Jesus. So a physical sickness of our bodies points to an inward sickness of our soul. Now, I'm not saying that if you have a certain physical illness, it's because you committed a certain sin. I'm not suggesting that at all. The Bible doesn't teach that. But simply that physical illness is a general it in general, it corresponds on earth because of a sickness of our souls. And it reminds us of the consequences of sin that happened in the Garden of Eden. And the miracles of Jesus and the apostles were simply a message about salvation that Jesus can bring to our souls. You know, we... We tend to think that if we have something, we'll be satisfied. You know, that guy thought, if I just had some money, I'd be satisfied. But no, he wouldn't because he had to come back every day. So they gave him something far beyond that and the ability to walk. 
See, some of you, you think if you just have certain things, a, a physical healing, if certain things are taken away or you're provided certain things, everything would be okay. But that's really not true. You need a spiritual healing. That's what ultimately makes everything okay. You know, Satan is more than willing to alleviate your temporary suffering if he can get you to exchange it for eternal suffering. That's why he's a great deceiver and a counterfeit. He can give you things. Did you know that? And get your attention off of Jesus. The fourth thing is more of a downward direction. And that is what we do with our lives as a mission. So you would think that Peter and John were rewarded for this miracle. That everybody would be patting them on the back. No, they, they were actually thrown in prison. And, uh, you know, the difference between the hero stories, you know, someone in a hero story gets superpowers and, and their powers make them invincible. Um, but when God gives you power, it makes you vulnerable. And so Peter and John, they took away a man's suffering and it brought suffering to them. In fact, Jesus, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And from that, on, that, that point on, the Jewish leaders were determined to kill him. One person said it this way, by taking Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus put himself in it. That's true. So let me, let me just close with a couple of thoughts couple of questions that I care here often. Does God still heal today? Well, yeah, absolutely. Although there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing in the Bible says that it stopped. We did see a, a decreasing of healings happening in, throughout the book of Acts. And uh, at some level, that power began to fade, but not go away. In fact, in second Timothy 420, uh, Paul said, I left Trophimus sick in Maltus. So Peter, I mean, uh, Paul had one of his followers who was sick and he didn't heal him. Uh, in fact, Paul had his own problem. He had a thorn in the flesh. We think it was really bad eyesight based on some other things that he said. And he asked God three times to heal him. And you want to go, why wouldn't God heal his chosen guy there? He, he needed all his facilities. He was planting all these churches. He was going to write over two thirds of the New Testament. He needs his eyesight. And yet God said, nope. I'm going to teach you that my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. Hmm. Now, Paul's got his eyesight now. I mean, he's seeing better than he ever saw. And just think, the first thing that he fully, clearly saw in heaven was his Lord and Savior. So, has healings stopped? No, absolutely not. Is God obligated to heal every time we pray for it? I wish I could say yes to that, but I don't think that's true. And I've given you some examples already. 
So will everyone who prays in faith receive a healing? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that one day when you go to heaven, you will have that healing. It will happen. But no, it might not happen here. It could. I've seen examples of that. We've had examples of it in this church. In fact, I've had examples, three specific examples in my own family. My dad, 36, was told by the doctors, you've got a cancer, you're going to die. You're not going to survive this. Went to the best doctors there were at that time. Went to Duke University and medical center there. And they said, there's nothing we can do for you. We've done all that we can do. You're not going to survive. And... Lots of people, my dad was a godly man. He led a lot of people to the Lord and um, people were praying for him. And I, you know, we were all praying for him and God didn't answer our prayer the way we wanted him to. But since then, I mean, cause he died like they said he would, he did die. But then I discovered God healed him in a different way and did, and it was all about God's glory. And God brought so many people to the Lord because of his death. I mean, at Duke University, his doctor was concerned that my dad didn't understand the fact that he was dying, and so they sent a psychiatrist to him. The psychiatrist came, and he talked to my dad and tried to explain, look, you know, you are going to die. And my dad says, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Later that night, the psychiatrist called my dad and said, hey, I'm off duty. Can I come back and visit with you for a while? You've got something I don't have. My dad led him to the Lord. The nurse that was with my dad when he died, um, I took Mary to meet this nurse nurse years later because I wanted Mary to hear the story straight from her. She was not a believer. She was an atheist. And and, um, the other people in the room when my dad died were all believers. But she said, I was just, you know, if her was just very clinical, you know, my dad was going to die. She'd seen it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times. And, and she was standing at the foot of the bed and looked up and she said, I saw Jesus at the head of the bed. And I looked around to see if anybody else saw him, but nobody else did. But I did. I saw him. And I watched him take your dad. And then I ushered your family out of the room and I ran back into the room to see if he was still there, but both your dad and Jesus were already gone. And she became a believer because of that and became a Christ follower because of that. And my dad, in fact, my dad told my mom, my mom told me this story. She said, you know, when your dad first got sick, I asked the question, why would this happen to us? And my dad stopped her and said, don't ever say that again. Why not me? Why should it not happen to me? Hmm. So we saw a miracle not happen the way we wanted it to happen. But the miracle happened when my dad went to heaven. And then with my son, we saw a different miracle. We saw a miracle when he was just one or two years old and he was diagnosed with a rare blood disorder. They didn't understand anything about it. It was a brand new thing they were just figuring out. 
and they didn't know what to do about it. And they told us, they didn't give us a very good prognosis. They said, your son will either die of a heart attack or will have permanent heart damage and there's nothing we can do to stop it. And so there were lots of people praying. And, and so they told us that all this stuff would happen within a year. And, and several months later, all the tests started coming back positive, you know, that it was clear. They didn't believe it. They didn't understand why. And we believe God performed a miracle, that God did heal him without the medical profession. And Marietta class reunion was talking to a friend who happened to work at the CDC in Atlanta and she was talking to her about uh, our son and he said oh he said that's one of the diseases I follow and he said what's your son's name and she told him he said I read his file he said you know your son was the only kid to survive that disease in your state that didn't either die or have permanent heart damage he was the only one so we saw a miracle without the medical profession. And then we saw a miracle with the medical profession. I mean, if you were to say to me, I'm going to trust God for a miracle and not go to the doctors, I would say you're foolish. Because God may want to heal you through the medical professionals. God's given them the ability and the knowledge and know-how. And God may want to use them. And that's what God did for me. I was told I had prostate cancer and... and uh, and I said, well, they, my doctor said, well, you got to have, you got to have surgery. I said, yep, I want to get it out. And they said, he said, well, do you want to go to the Michael Jordan of uh, surgery? I said, yep, I want the best there is. And they sent me to Florida and this guy has done more prostate surgery than anybody in the world. And, um, when they, after they did, did the surgery, the surgeon told me, he said, well, there are five different patterns of prostate cancer. You had the worst, the fastest growing. You'd have been dead in a year had we not gotten it out. So we saw a miracle. God brought a healing using the medical profession. And the guy was not even a believer. But he heard about Jesus. He and I had been in touch. I'd sent a lot of other friends down there. He said, I don't know what it is with you preachers, but you've got a bunch of preachers that have prostate cancer and you keep sending them down here. I said, yeah. And uh, I said, because you're the best. And, uh, you know, I hope he keeps hearing the gospel. So all three cured. My dad, my son, and me. But all in different ways. By different means. So I wonder... Are you emotionally crippled? Are you spiritually crippled? Maybe you have a physical crippling thing happening. I want to challenge you to trust God by you saying to him, God, bring glory to you through my illness. But ask for a healing. And then trust that he'll heal the way he wants to. 